All right, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday together with your dear flock who, who know you and love you, that we uh, can share in prayer together, and we can share the word together, and we can encourage one another and admonish one another unto love and good works. And we also pray for the, the saints around the world who listen in on the Internet. We send our love and our blessings to them, and we pray for their uh, well-being as you are at work in their lives. And we pray that they'd be able to find the remnant wherever they may be so they can gather also with your flock. And we ask you for grace and wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, and we're, we were on verse 2. And remember, now we're in a, all the way back to 4.16. There's this long uh, section that contrasts the earthly and the heavenly, the, the temporal and the eternal, the fact that, of the mortal and the, and the immortal. There's all these uh, perishable and imperishable and so on, like you have in First Corinthians 15. So in verse 1 it said, For we know that if the earthly tent... Now there's another uh, analogy for the human body here, a temporary dwelling, which is in our house is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. We know that the earthly tent is torn down. We have one not made with hands. Now, last week we were talking about what some of the implications of this were. And one implication of the teachings of the Bible that is, is that there must be an intermediary state between the time the Christian dies and, and the time that we get our resurrection bodies. Now, I was mentioned that one of the scholarly sources I used doesn't believe that. He believes that everybody gets a resurrection body at death. But I, I, that is just a very minority opinion, and it, it really doesn't do justice to 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and other passages. Because it says in Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those that are alive will be caught to meet the Lord in the air. So there has to be a, a, an intermediary state. The reason we say that is that elsewhere it says... Uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Paul says it would be better for me, because Paul was in prison in, Philippi, or in Rome and wrote to the Philippians and telling them he didn't know if he was going to live or die. And he said if he, if he died, he'd be with the Lord. That would be better for him. But if he lived, it would be better for them because he could still care for them. Okay? So all, putting all of these passages together and, and always coming with the idea that the Bible does not contradict itself, all right? With the Bible, that's one of the implications of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is that the Scripture all is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God is perfectly rational. God is truth. God cannot lie. So therefore, everything the Bible says really can't contradict itself. If it did, it would call into question our belief in inspiration. So therefore, the conclusion we come to is there is an intermediary state that the believers have in which they are conscious and with the Lord, but they don't have their resurrection body. Now, what are the details of that? That's what we don't know. Okay? Sometimes we don't know everything. Whatever is not revealed, we can't speculate about, and we don't know. I don't know what that's like. And I don't necessarily believe these stories where people said they died and visited heaven and then came back. I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I, I, uh, 
I think I don't know if those are reliable. In fact, I've read they've been around. That's a genre of literature that's been around. When I was a new Christian in 1971, 72, 73, my first year in Bible college, there was a little bookstore about a block from where we lived. We had an apartment on eight on, on the corner of uh, it's by we were in Chicago, just off of Chicago Avenue and Lake Street. We, it was where we first lived, and there was a little bookstore called Kingsway Ministry that had books. And I went over and I bought a little book called Rebecca Springer's Visit to Heaven. Okay, and that was from the 40s. I mean, she she had written that in the 40s, and she'd been in a coma, and went to heaven, and spent a lot of time in heaven. Came back, recovered, and wrote a book about going to heaven. And I was reading it, thinking, well, okay, let's find out what heaven's like. See, I've got an eyewitness here. And 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 I was reading along, and and it seemed somewhat credible until I got to the point where she said, well, this afternoon I'm going to go. To uh, listen to Martin Luther lecture about the Reformation, and then I started wondering. Now, when we're in heaven and we know the truth and we see the Lord for who He is, are we going to be still rehashing theological issues? <laughs> it just didn't. It seemed to me that what was going on was that things that she would have imagined she'd like to do, because she was Lutheran. So she would like meet Luther and hear him lecture on the Reformation. I just, I just didn't think it was credible, even though at the time I don't know how much discernment I had. But then later, more, more and more of these books came out. Kenneth Hagen in the early uh, 70s was writing booklets based on uh, out-of-body experience in which he went up to heaven and, and learned things from Jesus. And so I was reading that book. And... At a time where, again, I didn't know better, I wasn't discerning, I was listening to a lot of things I shouldn't listen to. And so I was reading Kenneth Hagin's book about going to heaven and talking to Jesus and getting theology directly from Jesus. And I was believing the book until I got to the last five or six pages. I mean, shame on me. But when I got to the last five or six pages, Jesus told Kenneth Hagin in heaven that Jesus said, I will make every Christian wealthy if they'll just let me. That's what Jesus told Kenneth Hagin. And then, then, then I would go, wait a second. That isn't, that isn't, I don't know, that, that isn't true. Um, uh, I, I just can't believe that Jesus wants every Christian to be wealthy. And look at all the people that live in communist countries that, that are, lose everything when they become Christian, if not their lives. So I, I couldn't believe the book anymore. And then I thought later, when I finally gained some discernment, Paul warns about this in Galatians. He says, if an angel from heaven teaches you a different gospel, don't listen to it. Let him be a curse. So you, you can't go by anything other than Scripture, not somebody's claimed experience that they had in heaven. Yes, Brian. We touched on this briefly last week, but uh, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom in Sheol uh, the rich man was across the great divide, a, a crevice. So was that special circumstance, that instance, or does that give us maybe a picture of that it's possibly the same vicinity, that intermediary place? Okay, good question. Uh, New Testament scholars uh, differ on whether that, is that story designed to tell us exactly what heaven and hell are like? 
or is it, does, what's the point? Well, I'll be preaching that in Luke when I get to it. And remember, we're studying, we study hermeneutics and Orion's teaching John and using the hermeneutic principles. And the principle we're looking for is authorial intent. So what is the point of the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Hey, this is a good test. What's the point of the story? Well, there's several points, but the one is that there's an unfathomable gulf between life and death. The other is that uh, the rich man is trying to ask Abraham, you know, please warn my friends uh-huh. and my family members of the consequences. Uh-huh. And in the end of it, he's saying, well, they've already got Moses. They've already got the law. They have the word of God. If that is essentially saying if that's not enough, they're not going to believe it anyway. So it's not by even if a man's raised from the dead. Right, right. If that if that doesn't prove it, then it's not going to work anyway. We, we're to rely on the word of yeah. God and what's already been written. That's a good point. That's exactly right. The main point uh, is that final thing. You, it, it's, it's, it works this way. The main point of the story is there is a heaven and a hell. There are different destinies after death, and one of them is very undesirable, and the other one is desirable, Abraham's bosom, and once you're there, your destiny is fixed. You can't change it. Okay? So the point is, you better get right with God now before it's too late. And the other, and, and to further reinforce that, we need to respond to the revelation that God gave through his authoritative prophets, not just hope for experiences. Right? And they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe Based on the scripture, they won't believe if a man returns from the dead. And it's proleptic in the sense that Jesus is predicting his own resurrection and, and the fact a lot of people won't believe. Because a man was raised from the dead and he did come back and he did appear to many witnesses and most of them still wouldn't believe. Right? So the point is, respond to the scripture. Now, back to what you said. Can, how much can we read into the details? Is that... The detail of the story telling us that when we're in heaven, we're going to be watching people in hell. I don't know that. The main point is the chasm. Okay, I get it. I get it. Okay. So what we know about this intermediary state is that it's different for unbelievers than believers. And that for believers, it's good and it's a blessed state in, with the Lord. And that for unbelievers, it's very, very undesirable. Whatever Hades is like, and that and that's undesirable before the final judgment, because that great white throne judgment, according to Revelation chapter 20, what will happen is that there'll be a general resurrection, and everybody's names who's not in the Lamb's Book of Life will be consigned to the lake of fire, and that's even worse than whatever this other state was. There is a good implication. I would strongly suggest getting right with God. You remember what prolific means? <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, two things. Uh, the other Lazarus, the great friend of Jesus, when he came back to life again, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about heaven. It's not recorded in the Bible. Um, Good point. It was the point that there will be a resurrection. And the other thing I want to make is that. Um, we think in linear time. We have to have a beginning because we're born and then uh, we pass away or we get uh, taken to the Lord. But the Lord is eternal. His time is ever present. And it's very difficult for us to understand 
eternal time, eternity. Yeah. And right. who knows? Yeah. His time may be eternal and ever-present, and so things may, in his time, things may happen, boom, 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 boom. But we think in, in linear time. It's so the, It's the yeah. only way we can. Yeah, it's the only way we can. Yeah, because so, our time is determined by yeah. creation and then judgment. According to uh, the Christian view of time, uh, it is linear as far as the creation is concerned, yeah. and time begins with creation and ends with judgment. Yeah. All right? In the meantime, it marches on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you made a good point. Nobody interviewed Lazarus to find out what it was like while he was those three days. Okay? And another point I want to make is that Paul saw things. And I think we're going to talk about this here. I've got to get, keep going to these verses. Um, fact is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls death an enemy. He still calls death an enemy. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's supposedly the foremost expert on death and dying, and she's basically a Hindu. Elizabeth, I don't, think, I don't know if she's still on the scene of history. Uh, she was an older lady 20 years ago. She, did she die? Okay. Well, anyhow, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her books were used for training nurses and medical people. And we, we had, a, in our library, we had a debate between her and Dave Hunt that was very interesting. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross teaches everybody that death is your friend, regardless of your religion. Okay? And so, uh, you, so don't fear death. Death is a transition to a better place. And then she has these stages of people's grief and what they go through. And so they were having a debate with her, and Dave Hunt was saying, no. That's not the way it is. And he was saying, if you are not a Christian and you die, you're going off to a worse place, not a better one. And Elizabeth Cooper Ross turned to him and said, I would never let you talk to my dying patients. Because she wants everybody to feel like everything's okay no matter what. Now, think about this. Is it compassionate to not tell people the truth? just because they might feel worse or better. No, it's not. It's, not, it's, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's only right to tell the truth. And, and the story of the rich man Lazarus really made that point. Once this guy is over on the other side, the torment is too late. He wishes he could come back and warn his brothers, but he's not allowed to do so. Now, verse 2, it says, For indeed in this house we groan, Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Now, I read a bunch of material. I told you the one, the one scholar, Garland, I disagree with. He thinks that, this, that as soon as anybody dies, they get a resurrection body. But that's not what the Bible says. So I'm disagreeing with him. So I had to go a little deeper into my library uh, to see what these various scholars had to say about this. Because it's a very difficult passage. The grammar is difficult. The word house is not in the Greek way it goes. We'll go with the New American Standard here. But what probably is going on is this. And you guys and ladies can help me here as I'm looking at this difficult passage. I believe what's going on is that Paul wishes to be alive at the time of the rapture. Because the only time, the only way you would immediately be be, uh, transformed in a twinkling of an eye is if you're alive. Remember, the dead in Christ shall raise first, and we who are alive will be caught up. 
and thus will be always with the Lord. Remember that? Okay, that's the Thessalonians. So, um, I have some scholarly material that I brought along here that analyzes this in, and tries to look at all the other passages, and we'll do the same thing. Because evidently, the, the intermediary state where Christians are is a desirable one, but it's still in a sort of an already not yet thing. In other words, in that state, even Christians with the Lord are still awaiting the resurrection. That's how this is being interpreted by some, some of the scholars. And I've, I've always kind of had a trouble understanding this passage myself. I've got, I got to say, um, here, if, let's, let's distribute some verses for cross-references. Uh, Pauline, could you do 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54? And Michelle, Philippians 1, 23. And then there's a parallel section um, that I'll read because it's a longer one. The term groan there is the same Greek word as Romans 8.23. So there is something about this life that's characterized, for the Christian, that's characterized by groaning. And we're going to look at that in also in Romans 8. So, uh, okay, Pauline, do you want to read those passages? 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immorality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Okay. (laughs) So the mortal puts on immortality. Now Now that's talking about the resurrection. That has to be talking about the resurrection. Okay, and the one in Philippians? Philippians 1.23, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. 24, Yet yeah. to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Okay. I'm going to tell you an idea I have. Okay? It seems, that's kind of extraordinary there, because elsewhere Paul says, the last enemy is death. Okay? So why would Paul have a desire to depart to be with the Lord in Philippians 1.23? I'm just going to tell you my thought. You don't have to agree with me. I think that he says that because he'd seen it. In other words, remember 2 Corinthians 12 where he said that he was caught up and he saw, saw things. What does it say? He said, I saw things that is not lawful, indescribable things that's not lawful for a man to utter. Okay, so that would be why Lazarus didn't have anything to say either. Oh, Pat, <laughs> as you said, that's a good point. Maybe Lazarus was told it's not lawful, you can't say. Uh, Lazarus? Second Corinthians, okay, now you've made me look it up. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what, it's in 2 Corinthians 12, you find it and tell us which one. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's what you get for asking a question. <laughs> now, uh, here's something I, I, I was thinking just last week, and I had never thought of this before, and, but I thought maybe what explains the Philippian passage is the fact that Paul had seen. You know, what is uh, somewhat fearful for us is anything we've never seen. And we tend to not... We desire to be with the Lord, but there's, there's this will to live that's, that's built into people. And I've, 
known a lot of people that were solid Christians that I was, I'd known them and I saw them in the process of dying and was with them. Uh, and there's a will to live that God gave us. And that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And even some of those strongest Christians that I've known, they're not afraid to die, but there's still an unknown there. And they tend to want to get the medical treatment or whatever can prolong life. That's part of this will to live. Now, for us, we're not unlike Paul. It is totally unknown. Is that right? All, we know just what the Bible says, but we, we haven't died. We don't know. We know this life, and we want to kind of stay here as long as we can. When my, my dad was dying of cancer and, and was in horrible shape, and, uh, he said, it sure is hard to get out of this life. <laughs> in other words, this process isn't so great being in all this pain and my body's shutting down. Um, but Paul had seen it. So perhaps Paul says it's better to depart and go because he knows. Let's, let's say somebody tells you there is this glorious island somewhere and it's really great and that's really where you want to be. But you've never been there. And, and let's say you're from Minnesota and you like it cold. Okay. You might think, ah, well, Whatever. But you know, if you've been to, if you've been there and you loved it, you think differently. So I'm, th- I'm thinking that First Philippians passage that you read is explicable by the fact that Paul had seen, and so it wasn't totally unknown. Did you find it? Isn't that no. <laughs> Did you hear her? She's she's pulling my leg. She, she said she said it's in the apocrypha. <laughs> Here. <laughs> Now you have to read it. Yes, we're going to prove that it's really there. (laughs) Second Corinthians 12, verse 4. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Which verse? Um, Second Corinthians 12, verse 4. Verse 4. Indescribable words, not lawful for a man to utter. Okay, so it really was there. (laughs) Okay, now I had a quote here from... uh, Barnett, who says this, this is not the groaning of doubt or fear or even of mortality, but of hopeful longing as of a woman in the prospect of childbirth. What, then he says this, what is it about we long to put on over, literally? It is our heavenly dwelling. The individual's resurrection body, as we've argued in verse 1, this being clothed over with the resurrection body, um, will occur at the, this being clothed over at the resurrection body will occur at the parousia. And it is for this, as opposed to the in, intervention of death, that Paul actually longs for. And, and another scholar, Ralph Martin, t- holds the same position, that he's longing for the resurrection. So, that's how I'm going to interpret this. And I think that's how it makes the most sense. Now, uh, another uh, passage here that we could re- consult is Romans 8. And I'm going to turn there because there's 10 verses. We could all turn there. Romans 8, starting verse 17. It's kind of a cross-reference that's a pretty obvious one that we need to consult. And it also uh, it talks about groaning. Same word in the Greek. Romans 8, beginning with verse 17. For I consider the sufferings of this present time... 
No, excuse me. I'm going to start with 17. And if children, heirs all, all, also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, unlike the manifested sons, these people claim that they, they have already achieved this status. This happens at the resurrection. It hasn't happened yet. Okay. Uh, the, manifest, uh, or the, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. This happened at the fall. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's, it's interesting when you look these passages up in the Greek that this corruption and the, the uh, futility uh, has to do with terms that have to do with things wearing out, grinding down. And in a sense, it's almost a description of the law of thermodynamics, entropy, that there's always a loss of energy in a closed system. So scientists believe that the universe is going to die of heat death at some point because it will run out of available energy billions and billions of years. Now, you and I know that it's not going to get that far because God will come and judge before then. But, but there, the, the Scripture itself says that, that there's this futility and corruption in this process of dying that the whole creation is subjected to. Um, but there's hope, verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, there's our word, and suffers the pains of childbirth together till now. Now that's what that scholar was saying. The, the, there's hope here. The pains of childbirth are at one and the same time a bad thing and a good thing. It's bad because pain is not a pleasant experience. It's good because if you don't have the pains of childbirth, there's not going to be a birth of a child. And the birth of a child is a joyous thing, a special blessing from God. So in, like, in an analogical way, the groanings, uh, just the mortality, this is what Paul's talking about. We're in this tent, we groan. Just the groanings having to do with our mortality, our fallibility, uh, the fact that as you get older, you have to fight one thing after another just to stay on this planet. Do I hear an amen? Oh, no. <laughs> Everybody here is so young, they can't relate to that. But uh, there's, there's this idea of mortality, but there's hope. For the Christian, for the Christian, if you don't know Christ, death is worse than life. No matter what, because there's no hope in the future. So you need to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So there's, for we know the whole creation groans. So in a sense, the creation is looking forward to the intervention of God to undo the effects of the fall. For in hope we've been saved, but hope... That is seen is not hope, but why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now look at verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, our passage is going to talk about, even though we're groaning in this tent, we have the earnest of the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
And so when he's talking about groaning in Romans 8, he also talks about the, the consolation of having the Holy Spirit, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's saying that he intercedes in groanings. So from within. Now, too deep for words. Now, this isn't teaching us that we go into an altered state and get revelations, all right? If it's too deep for words, then we don't even know what those are. All we know is we have the earnest of the Spirit, and he prays, he intercedes, and he knows our weakness, and he helps us. Groaning's too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he goes on and, and details after that, more detail about what the Christian hope really is and that all things are working together for the good of those who love God and call according to his purpose. And those ones are the ones who are um, predestined, uh, justi- justified, ultimately glorified, and are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. All right? Okay, that's, that's what it says. So now, back in our passage, 2 Corinthians 2, 5, and then we'll go on to verse 3. Longing to be clothed or a dwelling from heaven. It's a building metaphor. Before, in verse 1, now we have a clothing metaphor. Paul is using a series of metaphors to explain his idea of the eternal versus the temporal. Verse 3, inasmuch as having put it on, will now be found naked. Paul wishes to be, this is the claim of, of another fellow is that what Paul is saying is that he's expressing a desire to be alive at the time of the parousia. Although, obviously, history's gone on for a long time since Paul left the scene of history. Uh, 105, 106. Like I said, I, my one scholar let me down, so I went to the shelf, found a better one. <laughs> I'll be back to the other guy once we get to another section, because I just can't agree with his interpretation of this. Uh, this is Ralph Martin. He, he's writing in the Word series, which is a very scholarly series based on the Greek manuscript. And um, he says this, If the tent is dismantled, there awaits the Christian a house from God. But, this house is a, but is this house obtained at death or at the parousia? It is now time to present the evidence for our conclusion offered above, which was the parousia. He says this, as was discussed on 5.2, Paul is anticipating the putting of the heavenly garment over the earthly one without the loss of the latter. He desires to avoid the experience of death, but if death comes, this will not result in a permanent state of being unclothed. Paul has already assured the Corinthians that the dead in Christ will put on a new body, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 54. This, in addition to what 5.2 teaches us, teaches, leads us to see that Paul still keeps both ideas uh, about resurrection before uh, the people, both the dead in Christ and those remaining alive, will be clothed at the parousia, which is the topic of 5.2. And so he is holding to the same view that I do. And I think that it helps me understand this passage. The only other alternative, the only other alternative, let me just tell you the alternative is how we interpret this section. The one scholar says that everybody gets a resurrection body immediately at death. But the problem with that is it contradicts Thessalonians, contradicts 1 Corinthians 15. 
Okay? And uh, the other possibility is that this building from God isn't talking about our resurrection body at all. It's just talking metaphorically about the, about the mansion over the hilltop. Uh, you know, that's not the scripture, it's the song. <laughs> okay. Um, but first, about John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And so that it, rather than describing the resurrection body, it would be describing that house in heaven that, that, that would be prepared where we would go when we die. Uh, and, and you could look at it that way. So, but I think the strongest evidence would link it to the resurrection, especially the, given the fact that Paul's language here is talking about the Holy Spirit, the groaning and all these other things are so much like Romans 8 that you'd have to think that he's discussing the same thing here as he is in Romans 8. In Romans 8, he is obviously discussing the resurrection. Okay, Dick. When you're through with that thought, you might want to go back to your comment about why are you throwing out somebody and then you're going to pick them up again just as a foreshadowing of something you want to talk about in the future. Okay, good point. We're, going, we're planning a discussion on the topic of parochialism. And... This comes up, I have to discuss it here publicly because many of you have asked me about it. And it comes up as new people come to the church. Uh, there are people who, anytime a movement has gone awry, okay, like our evangelical movement, it's just hit the, gone off the tracks. And uh, whatever, whatever that happens, a lot of people are hurt, they're badly hurt, they're wounded. And they're hurting. And they want to know that they're safe. And it's only right to want to know you're safe. And so people are coming here saying, I want to know that I'm safe. And there's an inclination in church history that the way to make people safe is to set up a parochial system. And what that means is you define everything. This is, this is what we are going to believe. And at some point in history, now for some denominations, this was three or four hundred years ago, for example, when they made their confessions. And I'm not against their confessions. I'm just against being parochial. So you make your, this is it. We're going to believe this. We're not going to believe anything else. And we're not going to consult anybody that isn't inside of our box. In other words, whoever disagrees on anything is not worthy to learn anything from. Okay? So if somebody has a different mode of baptism, they can't tell me about uh, whatever, justification by faith. I won't listen to what they say about justification by faith because I don't like what they do at baptism. Now, that's, uh, that's something that's very tempting, but we at Twin City Fellowship are not going to set up a parochial church. And we're not going to build walls 500 feet high, and we're not going to be exclusive, and we're not going to claim we're the only ones that have the truth. And we're not going to say, if you are differing with us on anything, you are persona non grata. We do not want to hear anything you had to say, and we're not going to consult any book you wrote. I will not do that. Now, we're going to have a Sunday school class. <laughs> well, a couple of people agree with me. Okay, good. <laughs> the rest are disappointed. Now, I, uh, <laughs> we're going to have a Sunday school class that's going to be an open forum to discuss that. All right, and and I, and I want to because what happens if if you if you do that parochial thing is that in a sense you just become anti-scholastic, 
You've, you've just taken on an anti-scholastic bias. And, and for example, I got this. I got an email. Well, this will come up later, but that's why this Garland, I disagree with him on this. I'm not going to throw away his commentary. He may very well help me understand the next verse. I have one goal in my studies before I come here to teach you, and the goal is that I understand the passage. And if a Greek dictionary helps me, then I want to know that. If somebody's uh, uh, computer program helps me, like the logo software... (laughs) Then I'm going to consult that. And if somebody can help me understand this passage, then I'm going to consult it. And if that person who helps me has all kinds of ideas I don't agree with, he didn't hurt me if he helped me understand the truth of what this passage says. And then what you get is the truth, and you can judge that, uh, be Bereans yourself, and so we teach you hermeneutics, because you know why we teach you hermeneutics? So that we don't have to be parochial. Because then you have the equipment. You can tell us when we're getting off. All right? Okay. Brian. Well, you're going to be dogmatic on salvation issues. Absolutely. Right. And if somebody didn't agree with something that you're saying on salvation-type issues, uh, you know. That's where we part company because you have another gospel. But even at that, here's what, here's something. On some things, even if they're wrong on the salvation issue, well, I'm talking about technical things like church history, archaeology. Let's say I wanted to know the archaeological situation of the Sada in Israel, and I got a book about it. Does it matter whether the person who wrote that is a Christian? If you want to go, here's a good example. Let's say you need some very tricky brain surgery. And you're going to go get that brain surgery, but you find out that the surgeon is uh, a Lutheran. No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that wouldn't bother anybody. But you find out the surgeon is just an unbeliever, total unbeliever. Okay? Okay? But there's this other person who's never really done the surgery, but he, he, he's, a, he's just an on-fire evangelist for the Lord. Who do you want to have do your brain surgery? Well, the, the, the Christian will even pray and ask God to guide his hands as he starts digging in your brain. <laughs> no, every last one of us is going to take the, the real brain surgery. So when it comes to facts that aren't salvific, like how the Greek language is constructed, archaeology, history, there I'm going to even be less concerned about such things. I just want to know, or the Jewish background or the rabbinic studies and stuff. You can learn from a lot of sources. Okay. So you're saying that we can pick and choose from different commentaries and different uh, sources of information, but we can't pick and choose from uh, the Word of God. Exactly. Yeah, we can't pick and choose from the Word of God. We have to take the whole thing. So our goal, our goal is to understand the Bible. The power of the Scripture is in the meaning of the Scripture. And if you can't get the meaning, you can't understand. And if you can't understand, nothing's going to happen as far as changing your life. And anybody that can help me be a better pastor is fair game. And if you don't want to read those books, you don't have to. What's that? That's hard to do. Yes, Dan. Go ahead. You can give him the mic. I want to talk about it. I just want to say, you know, the Apostle Paul said he saw the third heaven. Words couldn't describe uh, what he saw. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I don't have to see the third heaven to be thankful. And this word of God, as you get older, you, it's a love affair. My daughter says to me, Dad, how can you say that you want to be with Jesus? you got two daughters that love you, a grandson. 
Well, you know what? I'm going to be 65. I've seen a lot of heartache. I've seen a lot of people say they love you and your own family. But like God said, if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy. It's not that he's not that he's mean. It's that everybody could leave you. Like Solomon said, everybody wants to be a true friend. Try and find one. You can adore your wife, love your wife, love your children. They can all leave you. But I don't need to go to the third heaven to rejoice in this love that God has given us. We kind of get away from it. Nobody loves us more than God. Nobody was hardly at the cross. I tell you, I never loved anybody so much because he first loved me. And if I could go right now, I'd be with him right now. It ain't that I got it bad. It's the best I ever had in my life. But I'd be with him right now because I'm madly in love with him because he's madly in love with me. And I don't need no third heaven to know how loving he is. And this word of God that we talk about every week, is a love letter. Tells us how much he loves us. And I tell all the guys that are like they said, let's, the world will forget you. They'll say, hey, we don't remember you. And that's what God says. I'll remember, they'll remember you for a day and forget you forever. But God says, I got every hair in your head counted, Dan. And I remember you. And I love you. You want to talk about love? There's nobody on the face of this universe. If you had, Solomon had how many wives? If you had everything, you had the whole world and lost your soul. And I'm not talking about losing my soul. I'm talking about this love that Jesus Christ has for us. And that's what this whole book is about. From Genesis to Revelation. And that's what it's about. That's why we want to be with Jesus. If we could be right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Good, Dan. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes. And here it says this. Um, who, who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? This is Romans 8.35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither, notice the first thing in the list, death, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing shall separate us from the love of God. That is the hope of the believer. I got one minute. We uh, let's do verse three. And as much as having put it on, will not be found naked. And so uh, we're interpreting this to be to be caught, the long longing to be caught up to be with the Lord, and longing for the parousia. And that is a biblical thing. It's not as uh, people will say, well, you're just an escapist. You're just an escapist. But the long to, to, for the return of Christ is something that we read even at the very last book of the Bible. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And, and in a sense, the Lord's prayer is a prayer for the return of Christ. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a, it's a longing for the, for the Lord that we love. Next week, we'll start with verse 4. And we'll be in verse 5, we'll look at the Holy Spirit as a down uh, uh, payment and as a pledge. Thank you. Uh, I, I enjoy so much these discussions. This is, uh, I, Sunday is my favorite time of the week. But this class is really special because we get to talk about the Lord and His Word. So God bless you.